0: Welcome to Food Forward, Nourishing the World with your host, Alan Weiner. Over the next hour, you'll explore the innovative and ever evolving solutions in everyone's favorite topic,
1: food. Now, here's your host, Alan. Greetings, everybody, from the Sunshine State. Don't you just love that intro music? I do. My name is Alan Weiner. I'm your host for Food Forward, Nourishing the World here on Voice America. Each week, we will explore the innovations and trends shaping the future of food. From sustainability to technology, we'll uncover the flavors of tomorrow. Plainly speaking, we will discuss all things food, some crucial to our well-being, and some just for fun. Today, we have two guests. We have Marilyn Yang, co-founder of Papadelics. They have the coolest packaging I've ever seen. And Noah Traysman, who was the founder of Zero Caviar, a vegan caviar. Both of these companies were featured at the final 2023 Natural Foods Expo, which was held last week in Philadelphia. If you miss an episode of Food Forward Nourishing the World, it will be available after airing on my Voice America show page and through all leading podcast platforms. I like to think of it as radio on demand. The audience is crucial to the future of Food Forward. I want to hear from you. I really do. You can email me at Allen, A-L-L-E-N at foodforwardradio.com and or follow the show on Facebook, YouTube, a new Instagram site and on our website, www.foodforwardradio.com. And less I forget, TikTok. In the ever-evolving world of culinary innovation, today on Food Forward Nourishing the World, we have some pioneers that truly stand out, pushing boundaries and truly redefining our palate. Today, we're honored to have one such visionary with us. He's the genius behind Zero Caviar, A vegan delicacy, and I can speak to that for sure, that has revolutionized the gourmet scene. A game changer for both vegans and caviar aficionados alike, this product speaks volumes about his commitment to sustainability without compromising the taste. Please give a warm welcome to the man behind Zero Caviar, Noah Traisman. Noah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. So I read um the story about how you kind of first stumbled upon the concept of vegan caviar. Can you can you share that with us? Yeah,
2: um so you know it really started actually when I was owning and operating restaurants in New York and Connecticut and we uh, ate and served a lot of caviar and one of the primary um concerns I would say that our customers had was that caviar was too fishy or too salty uh, most people preferred a milder flavor profile and that kind of started me thinking about where i could find that you know consistently and sustainably and preferably with a longer shelf life uh fast forward you know several years later i'd sold the restaurant group and was living in la during the pandemic and i was hosting quite a few dinner parties um and i noticed that the real caviar that i was sort of serving as a centerpiece to my guests was not being eaten, um, or at least not as much as a, of it as I would have expected. And what I realized is that uh, really everyone was experimenting with some form of a plant-based diet. Um, you know, I think part of that can be attributed to you know the documentary, What the Health? I think Seaspiracy had an impact as well. But I realized that um, there was a major demand for plant-based luxury. And I thought that this is something that I could uh, potentially innovate in, especially with you know some of the contact I had in Denmark in the molecular gastronomy world.
1: Yes, molecular gastronomy. Actually, my personal story is, um, I read Nathan book uh, books on molecular gastronomy and experimented with um, a lot of different spheres. But when it came to the caviar, that was way out of my league and i started doing some investigation myself tell me about your investigation um what did you find when you first looked for vegan caviar um what i found was that there had
2: been some companies who tried to launch uh vegan caviar concepts over the past several years and um none of them were able to really stay in business or or expand into the u.s market they were more uh focused on scandinavian seafood counters and uh i I thought, you know, a premium product would be very desirable. You know I think caviar goes hand in hand with premium and luxury and that uh, a, a product that matched those qualities was long overdue. So um, I'm not a molecular gastronomist myself, although I have played around in my kitchen with the, uh, you know, a spherificator and um, different little miniature lab tests. But uh, it was enlisting the help of the professionals in Denmark that allowed us to make uh, the vision as far as, you know, the actual aesthetic appeal and texture of the plant-based caviar, as well as the flavor profile, you know, utilizing the agar agar seaweed extract to mimic the marine notes, the salinity, and add a little bit of a umami sort of uh, punch to really satisfy, I think, not only plant-based consumers, but also caviar connoisseurs.
1: The thing that always puzzles me Um, about vegan caviar, and I've been eating it for, I'd say, about two, three years now, is that the seaweed comes or the kelp comes from off the coast of France in Brittany. However, it's essentially manufactured or produced in Denmark. Why the two countries, why isn't it all done in France? Does Denmark have a more sophisticated approach? I mean, what's the reasoning behind that? Um. I'm sure it's more complex than my assumption,
2: which is that it is readily available, if not overgrown, off the southern coast of France, um, that the relationship between Denmark and France allows for, you know, collaboration and, and commerce. Um, and then Denmark has always kind of been on the forefront of food innovation um, and molecular gastronomy. You know, I had the good fortune of eating at Noma uh, before mm-hmm. the pandemic and seeing some of the really interesting innovations on their menu um i actually had a cacao flavored caviar um, a duck mousse um, it was very interesting the way that they could kind of uh infuse different products or different uh textures with different flavor profiles and um i i figured that 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 would be a logical first place to start when i i came up with the idea for a vegan caviar
1: So I know how I enjoy the taste, but describe to me when you first tasted a vegan caviar and you've had a lot of traditional caviar, what, what were the tastes that said, yeah, I have something special here.
2: Um, I would say that the ability to give the palate, everything we like about real caviar without the things we don't, I know true caviar purists will probably, Uh, disagree, but I think the vast majority of caviar consumers do prefer a milder flavor profile. Um, They do not want it to be too fishy and they don't want it to be too salty. Um, We were able to, I think, provide the marine notes a little bit of the fishiness from the agar-agar as well as the salinity, um, but without the overpowering, I think, uh, flavors that might make it harder to enjoy or to you know, consume it in large quantities for the more casual caviar consumer.
1: So given your food background, you must see a lot of chefs who are embracing um, the sustainability nature of zero caviar. What, what are some of the most creative uses that you've seen um, for zero caviar? Um, I would say that
2: there are two. One would be Um, the fusion of cultures in a sushi inspired taco, the combination of fresh seafood, avocado and zero caviar in a taco shell created a really delightful blend of flavors and textures, marrying sort of the sophistication of caviar with the accessibility of, uh, Mexican street food. And, um, from the same restaurant, actually, they made a really beautiful, um, Cocktail. It was a margarita that used uh, reposada tequila and used caviar as a garnish, um, which almost served as like the the salt to your tequila. Uh, I would never would have thought to to create something like that, but it performed really well at Sugar Tango in LA.
1: Mm. So, describe to me when you've you know tried given the vegan caviar to someone who maybe a long time, traditional caviar fish egg eater and their reaction. Um, give me an example of someone who was skeptical, but tried it and said, man, you got something special here. Um, so I'll give you two
2: examples. One would be a vegetarian. So that'd be my mom. Um, she does not eat any sort of plant-based product. And the last thing in the world she would want to eat is fish, let alone fish eggs. Um, when she, She tried it. She was really impressed by the texture, how firm it was. You know, it didn't have that slimy sort of gooey uh, texture that she was kind of afraid of. And she really liked the flavor profile, the sort of umami, salty flavor, the way that she could add it, uh, you know, to a cracker or on a piece of toast by itself and really, you know, experience and appreciate um, the uh sort of luxury that she'd never got to participate in with caviar. She also happens to be, you know, anemic and is constantly looking for a source of iron in her diet. And one tablespoon of zero is 45% of the daily recommended iron intake. It's also a much more effective delivery mechanism than the supplements sold um, at most health food stores. So she was one example. And then I would say the other is Aaron May, uh celebrity chef and restaurateur who's been a very close supporter and advisor to our company since its inception. Um, he was really blown away with the fact that this could pass as, you know, an American hackleback caviar just at first glance, you know, aesthetically, and then that the flavor profile was really crisp and juicy and, um, delightful, you know, and, and we worked together, uh, creating a vegan blini using buckwheat, which we, uh, sampled the caviar at his food festival in Scottsdale a few years ago.
1: Mm, Interesting. So, the Zero Caviar sh- shares the same sustainability qualities as Impossible Burger, Beyond Beef, uh, all of the well-known brands. How difficult is it, though, in the marketing of it to kind of tackle the sustainability issues or to raise those to the surface of a product that's slightly out of the mainstream?
2: So maybe it's counterintuitive but we really don't incorporate sustainability or politics into our marketing Uh, we believe that the american consumer especially is becoming increasingly aware of the impact that their diet has on the environment and the global economy as a whole um you know sturgeon are going extinct and the farm-raised ones are riddled with infection and disease um I think a lot of people are, are comfortable and confident knowing that any plant-based alternative to an animal product is good for the environment. And, uh, you know, you also have to keep in mind that 90% plus of the caviar we consume comes from China, Russia, and Iran. And like I said, you know, this is not a political brand, but I think we can all agree that those aren't necessarily countries that, you know, we want to be supporting
1: right now. So let me get to my biggest question. And that is for somebody who latches on to, Z- to vegan caviar like myself, it is really difficult to find in a traditional store, particularly if you don't live uh, either in LA or New York. Um, I've been in numerous Whole Foods. I've been in numerous Sprouts. They don't carry it. Um, what's it going to take for those kinds of stores to not only carry it, but to kind of move it front and center and showcase it?
2: Yeah, I'm relatively new to the CPG space and and that might be a better question for the folks at the large grocery chains. Um, We have intentionally focused on the fine dining segment. We have been very fortunate to count, you know, Michelin-starred restaurants like Restaurant Danielle in New York City as clients. Crustacean in Beverly Hills is our first and most consistent client over the past couple of years. Mila and Giselle in Miami, but we've never actually sold through grocery. The closest we've come would be farmers markets and specialty food stores in Northern California. Um, it is a very challenging ecosystem to operate in, uh, you know, the food service space. And it's something that we're going to be taking on in the first quarter of 2024. But as of now, we are focused on serving our customers directly via our website zerocaviar.com we just launched that a few weeks ago before that it was really only available if you dm'd us on instagram but i think you know to answer your question um the voice of the customer i think ultimately dictates the inventory roadmap at grocery and i think as more and more customers try plant-based caviar and the demand increases at the grocery level uh they'll have no choice but to start offering it and um you know i i've had some you know preliminary conversations with uh the executives at whole foods and i think that they would be a great place to uh stock and serve our our caviar but there's a lot of moving parts a lot of complications a lot of challenges um which we uh will be like i said tackling in pretty short order here
1: well, the place where I go for my caviar, aside from mail order, of all places, is IKEA. Now, IKEA has um, only the orange caviar, not not black caviar, and then Cost Plus carries caviar. So, other than that, it's just really difficult to find. And I remember uh, last year, late last year, when my wife and I were in Norway. Um, I went everywhere looking for it and could not find it. So if people do want to purchase it from you directly, um, where should they go?
2: They should go to zero, Z-E-R-O-E, caviar.com. We just finished a very successful show at Expo East 23, and we still have the promo code running. So we'll leave that up. And if anybody wants to use the Discount code Expo East 23 They'll get 25% off their first order. Um, you're also welcome to message us on Instagram. You know, we've really grown through social media and all of our orders were placed through there for uh, the past couple of years. So um, they can also reach out to us on social media. Uh, we love working with, um, you know, people who are interested in plant-based seafood and and everything in between. So um ZeroCaviar.com caviar.com for now. And, uh, the restaurants I named earlier, if you're out and about and see it on their menu.
1: Well, I'm looking forward. I ordered some last week. I'm looking forward to it arriving and tasting it and perhaps doing a TikTok on it. Uh, I'm a huge fan. It is on our salad every night. So it, Noah, thanks so much for being with us. We just heard from Noah Traisman, who is the man behind zero caviar. We will be back after these messages.
3: From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In what goes up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper. And just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today, available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time.
1: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back
1: to the show. Today, we have a special treat for you on Food Forward Nourishing the World. She's the co-founder behind Papadelics, the delicious mushroom snack that's taking the market by storm and I've tried it and I can understand why. It's a blend of innovation and test. The product is a testament to Marilyn's vision and dedication. Please join me in welcoming the co-founder of Papadelic's Marilyn Yang. Welcome.
4: Thanks again, Alan. Excited to be here.
1: So before we jump in, tell me about how Expo East uh, in Philadelphia went for you.
4: Well, it's kind of funny, right? Because I guess it was our first and our last expo east. Actually, I guess it came as um, a bit of a surprise. I guess that it was the last time that expo east would happen, at least in this format. But, uh, but yeah, it was a great time. We, you know, loved seeing some of our, you know, old and new friends in the industry that we've been able to meet over the past year or so that we've been active and. I always just love getting people interested in the product. I feel like the good thing about food trade shows, unlike other industry trade shows, is that anyone can be a customer or a fan, right? So, you know, even even if, right, if it's not a buyer or something, we we just love getting the product out there.
1: So I'm sure that you gave out countless samples. I wonder if everybody's reaction was the same as mine. We we actually ordered them online um, before we went to the show. And my surprise was it was... Essentially a whole mushroom, a small mushroom, um, as opposed to a chip or something like that. Do most people react the same way?
4: I think so. I mean, there's a mix, right? Because I, I feel like um I feel like it's one of those cases actually someone made a comment, your product is actually one that looks like the picture. So, you know, if you look at the picture on our packaging, we clearly are showing a full mushroom, but I think people just are desensitized to that these days, that a lot of stuff, right? They just don't look like what they look like in the pretty pictures. Um, But I think that was, you know, kind of on purpose in a couple of different ways. I think, number one, um, we did want to use the word chip because maybe you were also surprised by this, but the crunch factor of our snacks is very surprising, I think, to people who haven't tried it before because people just don't associate mushrooms with that kind of texture. And so we wanted to use the word chip to really drive home. Yes, this is crunchy. It's not a jerky. um, It's not squishy in any way. Uh, and we also did want to keep the integrity of the mushroom, I, I think, uh, for multiple reasons, but namely to really signal that we aren't doing... There's no funny business here. This is a real shiitake mushroom. It's not shiitake and corn and whatever else. Um, it really is a full shiitake mushroom in its truest form.
1: Yeah. The other thing that I think stands out is your packaging. And I read somewhere that you work with a company called Made, if I'm not mistaken, to come up with the packaging. What was the thought process behind that?
4: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was definitely a collaborative effort with FreshMade. Um, it was definitely, I don't know if we would have been as creative to come up with it completely on our own, but it was definitely kind of a joint process with them. And they have a lot of experience kind of in the CPG food space, actually, a lot with fresh food, which I think played really well here because we were kind of trying to put a funner spin on what has been a traditionally kind of, I would say, homogenous, at least visually speaking, category. Um, So most of the other mushroom snacks out there, right, there's a lot of earthy tones, and you can look at it and know that it's mushroom right away. And I, I think our thinking behind the packaging design and also the branding in general is that we really wanted to create a fun, modern, edgy brand that gets not only mushroom lovers, but also mushroom doubters at least interested in the product. I feel like the issue with a lot of, and there's nothing wrong with the products, but I think the issue with the previous kinds of packaging that has Essentially, packaged any sort of mushroom-related product. Again, it's a lot of those earthy tones. And so, if you don't like mushrooms and you see that, you're almost immediately turned off, right? Because you're thinking of, oh, well, this is like foresty and mushy and wet. And whereas, if you look at ours, it's it's at least visually interesting enough that even if you don't like mushrooms, you're like, oh, what is this? Um, and, and then that kicker is really when I, we're doing live events and you know any sort of demo, for example, is then that's the entree to get people to actually try it.
1: So. Uh, A couple things about mushrooms. Number one is, is how did you stumble upon mushrooms as a snack with so many ingredients? And the other thing is, where do you source your mushrooms? Do you um, have them cultivated for you? Like on a in a factory, like, I don't mean a factory, but like somebody who makes them on logs in a controlled setting, or are they from wild sources? So how did you stumble upon it? And where do you get them from?
4: Yeah, well, I guess that ties a little bit to the genesis of the company and the product. So me and my co-founder, were actually a couple as well. We joke that Papa Deluxe is our COVID baby, and uh, we both come from finance backgrounds. So we definitely don't come from anything CPG related. Um, you know, I, I worked a lot with industrial companies and my co-founder, Mike, he's worked a lot with kind of biotech healthcare type companies. So it's not like we came from the food world at all. We just like to eat. And uh, he's from a Italian-American background, I'm from a Chinese-American background, both Cuisines which feature mushrooms in in pretty prominent forms, um, you know, throughout uh, kind of our childhood and whatnot. So we we both grew up eating a lot of mushrooms. and In particular, in my uh, case, I was actually always known as that mushroom person growing up. Not not intentionally. I feel like it was just one of those things that, uh, you know, growing up it was a bit of a strange thing to like mushrooms, and I've just always liked mushrooms, and that just kind of became tied to my identity somehow. So. Um, to the point where when I started telling my friends what I was doing, they were like, Oh wow, Marilyn, that's so on brand for you. So <laughs> I- I've just been known my whole life as being that person who likes mushrooms. So I don't think it was a surprise to us. I-, I think what really tipped us over the edge was I guess number one, COVID. I guess like a lot of couples did during COVID, we decided to, you know, take a relationship to the next level. And for us, I guess I was starting a company. And um, I think on top of that, I think we really saw the white space and also the market opportunity. I, I think. In terms of the market opportunity, this was the same period of time that we started seeing a lot of mushroom supplements, mushroom teas, mushroom coffees, and we really didn't see any mushroom chips out there. I mean, there's been mushroom chips out there broadly in the world for a while. I, I mean, they're not um, uncommon. For example, in you know Asian supermarkets, um, they're definitely popular overseas in Asia in particular. And so, as a product, it's it, you know it's existed. It just hasn't really existed again in that modern form that's really appealing to more of a Western palette and Western audience. And that's where we really saw that white space. And I think all those things combined, you know, broader interest in mushrooms, the timing just felt right. Timing, not only because of market acceptance, but also because us having the time to actually start a company during COVID. I think it was really the perfect storm for us to basically say, let's go ahead and do it. So that's pretty much what we did. Um, And I think in terms of sourcing, I think this ties a little bit Um, I think one of the topics I understand you want to discuss was sustainability and ethics, too. I think it was important for us to do as much as we could domestic. We unfortunately don't currently source our mushrooms domestically, but we do work with a domestic partner. And I think that was really important with us. I think for a variety of reasons, we just, you know, although I come from a business background, I I don't feel necessarily comfortable, you know, negotiating, you know, cross-border trade deals or anything like that. And we're too small potatoes for anything major, um, but I think that in particular, the the company we ended up finding uh, who helps with our sourcing and, and in terms of the distribution of the mushrooms specifically in our process, they are U.S. based. Everything comes from their facility and we are dealing with domestic people um, and they particularly service the natural foods industry. So I think they're used to all of those um, you know, requirements around, you know, we, we had a lot of things that we wanted, like non-GMO um, all of those things, and and so I think having a partner like that to help us navigate, um, I think the complex sourcing uh, requirements, especially for mushrooms, given that shiitake mushrooms, which we use, are not unfortunately commonly cultivated domestically at least yet. Um, I, I think that was really important for us to be able to create a commercially viable product, because at the end of the day, it can't be a you know a fifty dollar a pouch product. Nice. Um, and so I think ultimately our goal is to have the mushrooms be domestically cultivated too. I think we're kind of halfway there with our supplier because they would have the capacity to be able to um, be able to, if we were able to find a kind of affordable, let's say, domestic source, they would be able to help us process there. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like that we're processing overseas, though. We do actually process our products in Illinois. Um, and so I think it was really important for us to be able to manufacture, so to speak, domestically.
1: Right. So shiitake mushrooms um, definitely have a unique property to them. Are there other mushrooms that would work?
4: Well, we tried a bunch. And actually, the I, I wish it was more scientific to the reason why we chose shiitake mushrooms. I, yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of health benefits that we ended up settling on shiitakes. But it was as simple as during the R&D process. We tried to... I can't even remember how many types of mushrooms we tried, but a lot of them had really weird aftertaste. And I think number one, we wanted to make a product that actually tasted good. And at the end of the day, shiitake mushrooms tasted the best. So that's what we had to use.
1: So, okay. You have this product, you and your partner have settled on it. You create some and you know you realize there's potential out there. The snack industry is extraordinarily crowded. And if you go down a snack aisle at, at the kind of store that you would find your product in, say, a Sprouts or a Whole Foods, there are countless choices. So how do I distinguish your product and why do I kind of draw to it when I have so many other products to choose from?
4: Well, actually, it's funny. We actually have a slide in our, in our deck that actually outlines that. But yeah, you go to a Sprouts or a Whole Foods, right? You see a lot of kale. Um, you know, maybe you're seeing like carrots or beets or something these days, and I'm talking about the snack aisle. But still, you don't really see anything mushroom based. And I, I think for a variety of reasons, there are more or at least different health benefits to mushrooms than than kale. But I think number one again, I think we're really towing the line between, yes, our product appeals to the natural space, but it's really meant to be mainstream. I feel like a lot of better for you snacks, you have to really be kind of in that world or kind of eating in that diet to really enjoy them or care for them. Um, I always joke that, you know, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, like maybe sometimes you just want Doritos or something like that. And I think the goal with our product when we were developing it from a taste perspective is we want it to taste just as good as junk food. It's definitely better for you than junk food, but it tastes just as good. It's not meant to taste like a health food. And I think that's kind of the, it allows us to not just kind of be in those you know, traditional spaces, so to speak, like a Whole Foods or a Sprouts, but we really have broader appeal um, to to really kind of get people who maybe traditionally wouldn't necessarily immediately gravitate towards kind of a better for you snack to um, really not think about it, right? Because it really is just something that tastes good.
1: Well, let me ask you this: since you started during COVID, and as you found out uh, at the recent expo, the, the sampling of the product is really important. So it it sounds to me like you couldn't, during COVID, get sampling done. Um, How did you convince people to try it? Did you use social media? Did you come up with partners? Um, How did you kind of get that initial spark going?
4: Well, I think we were kind of lucky because um, we, although we started R&D, it was almost to our benefit that it took us so long to actually develop and ultimately launch our product. So we started the company technically would have been the summer of 2020. So obviously no sampling was happening then, not even really in 2021, I would say. Um, But our product wasn't really ready and out there until April of 22. So that's when I would say our soft launch was. And so by then, uh, you know, demos were back. And so actually initially how we really got our product out there. And we still do a lot of these today is call it your you know, local farmers markets on steroids. <laughs> we did a lot of vegan vegetarian festivals in particular. Uh, we're based in New York City. So we did, I think, our very first event. So we launched in April. By May, we did the New York City Vegetarian Festival um, and we also did actually at that time a summer fancy food show, which had just come back after COVID that June. And we had a lot of lucky breaks, I think, at that show. So that's where we were able to meet with Urban Outfitters. Um, and so that eventually got our products in there uh, as part of their holiday set. And then that's also where we initially met Foxtrot Market, which was one of our first, uh, I would say, medium-sized chains that carried our product. They've carried our product since December of last year, which is one of the earlier ones, and um, going to bog us down. But we, we've made a number of product changes as well since we first launched. So I would like to say, even in some ways, that we didn't really launch our product until March of this year. So I think, in terms of a timing perspective, it was almost a benefit to us that you know our product wasn't ready until, to your point, that we are able to now do plenty of demos.
1: So, given your financial background and your partner's financial background. How much did that help, and did it ever kind of come in as a hindrance where it made you somewhat risk-adverse?
4: I feel like it helped in the sense that, um, you know, maybe we didn't have experience in the food industry specifically, but at least we had a framework of how a functional business should be running. So how a business ideally should look, you know, maybe, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years from now or whatever it may be. But I feel like that was a double-edged sword because I feel like we knew what a company should look and how it should run. Um, But at the same time, it was maybe a hindrance in the sense that um, I, I would say maybe in some ways we got ahead of our skis or we were overly concerned about things that didn't quite matter to us yet at this point. So I'll give an example. I think, you know, maybe being in private equity as well makes you kind of risk averse from a legal standpoint. But I think the number one we're really concerned about is making sure like our packaging and everything written, our packaging was like 100 percent acceptable to the FDA. And we, um, you know, we spent some time, you know, talking to a number of FDA consultants and whatnot, when at the end of the day, you know, we're small potatoes, it's pretty unlikely that someone is going to go after us for, you know, some miswording on our packaging or something like that. Um, and so I, I feel like stuff like that, I, I think it definitely helps us in the long run, right? Because it's helping us position ourselves uh, to avoid those issues in the future. But I, I think we maybe spent more time than we had to at our stage on things like that.
1: Mm, interesting. So beyond what you have now, it's four or five flavors. How many flavors exactly?
4: We just have three.
1: Three. Okay. So what's next? More flavors? Are you going to increase the product line, go with some other companions, snack for mushrooms? What do you do next for an encore?
4: Yeah, a lot of different ideas. I think when we established our parent company, which is called Fun Gal Snacks, our ultimate Kind of vision and goal was that not just like mushrooms, there's a lot of what we call underloved veggies out there just haven't gotten their time in the limelight in a snacking form, at least. Um, And so we ultimately maybe see an opportunity as a family of brands, each featuring kind of one of these funky snacks. And then maybe also um, even just with Papadelic's, right, other types of mushroom products.
1: Interesting. So before we run out of time, um, please tell our audience where they can get Papadelic's.
4: So I think the easiest place to go is our website. Everything's on there. You can order a product online at papadelics.com, but there's also a store locator, most critically. We're in a lot of local co-ops, natural food stores, as well as a lot of different types of stores that you might not necessarily think of immediately. So we're in some like random gift shops and stuff like that. But that's P-O-P-A-D-E-L-I-C-S.com. And you can right. order on Amazon as well.
1: Well, my vote for your next snack should be celery root, something with celery root, underloved snack. Um, anyway, Marilyn, thank you so much for joining us. We will be back after these messages.
3: From the vivid imagination of acclaimed author Alan Weiner comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In what goes up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in Tickle Takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper, and just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job, taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism. Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today, available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey, one mystery at a time.
1: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: Welcome back to Food Forward with Alan Weiner. Have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now,
1: back to the show. Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. I want to thank Noah Traisman of Zero Caviar and Marilyn Yang of Papadelics. And if you didn't quite catch it, there's something really interesting about what Marilyn said, and that is that her website is called Fungal Snacks, which is uh, kind of a play on words, which I didn't catch quite you know, initially. Um, what it was, was a combination of uh the fact that it's fun gal as in she's a fun gal and fungal you know as in mushroom so in our very first segment um we kind of touched on the issue of molecular gastronomy and I wanted to kind of follow up you know with that right now Um, let's talk about what molecular gastronomy is and to kind of demystify it a little bit so molecular gastronomy is a sub-discipline of food science. And don't let that intimidate you. It seeks to investigate the physical and chemical transformations of ingredients that occur while cooking. It's also a culinary trend that has given rise to a number of innovative restaurants around the world and so on. Now, what's interesting is that it can be done very, very simply. And, um, you know, as I was talking, with Noah Traisman, I I mentioned uh, some that I do, and it's called spherification. And this is one of the most iconic molecular techniques. It involves creating gel-like spheres that burst in your mouth, releasing a liquid center. And there's two methods, basic spherification, which I do, and I'll talk about that in a second, and reverse spherification. And they use ingredients like sodium alginate, calcium chloride, calcium lactate, and in the case of what I do, agar agar. So one of the things that that I do, being someone who loves olives, is to create these olive pearls. And they're they're common in in some you know fancy restaurants, and we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But they could they're just so simple to make. Um, uh, there's lots of YouTube websites, which we'll also get to in a second, but let me kind of quickly describe how it works. Um, you start off with some oil, um, any kind of vegetable oil. We actually use olive oil and you freeze it and the oil won't freeze totally. it will still be uh, malleable enough to use. You then take, I think it's about two to 300 milliliters of uh, olive juice and i use dirty martini liquid which you can get in any store and then i think it's either two or three grams of agar agar which you can also find in any store or you can mail order from amazon you um kind of put the agar agar into the um liquid into the olive juice and you you know bring it to a boil and you stir it and i use a whisk for about a minute and a minute and a half now there are some kind of cool fancy machines that you can buy on Amazon where you you know bring the liquid into it and then it kind of drops into the oil and creates a pearl like item. Um, you also can use an eyedropper. What we use are pipettes, and you can get like two million pipettes for ten dollars or so on on Amazon, and then you you know suck the liquid up into the pipette and then you drop it you know carefully into the oil and it creates this pearl now once you kind of put all the liquid into it you then take the pearls out and you need to rinse them and to kind of avoid the kind of foolishness that I've done in the past and my wife who helps me with this kind of figured out the way to preserve the oil don't throw the oil away it can be used over and over again but you do need to wash these pearls um pretty thoroughly to get The oily taste away from it, and then you can you know put them into uh, a jar and keep them in in a refrigerator. A lot of people use these olive pearls, and you can do it with coffee. You can do it with fruit juice, but in the case of the olive pearls, I think they use them in martinis and some some other kinds of drinks. We put them on our salads and just kind of eat them. They're really quite tasty. So some of the other molecular gastronomy techniques. There's foam. And um, this is kind of a little bit uh, higher end than anything I want to do. But you can use a siphon gun charged with uh, nitrogen oxide, nitrous oxide, pardon me. And you can turn liquids and purees into a light, airy foam. Uh, You can use soy lecithin or gelatin to um, take your liquid and to kind of make it a little bit firm. The restaurants that i've seen mostly in videos and on tvs use the foam as a base and they'll put you know food on top of it there's also emulsification you can turn food into powder and then you can do flash freezing with liquid nitrogen Um, on a podcast that i do with the uh, publisher of the spoon uh, mike wolf we talked about dipping dots dipping dots is an ice cream that is made cold by using liquid nitrogen and there's quite a few uh, ice cream shops around the u.s and elsewhere that are beginning to serve uh, liquid nitrogen ice cream Um, there's vacuum infusion where you can infuse fruits or vegetables or other porous foods with a marinade or flavor and then you can seal them in a vacuum sealer Uh, something that really doesn't necessarily count as molecular gastronomy but kind of fits into the whole genre is sous vide cooking and if you're not familiar with sous vide cooking it was all the rage a couple of years ago um you put food in a vacuum sealed bag and you cook at a precise temperature in water and um some of the better ones will have you know wi-fi that allows you to kind of control the temperature and tell you when it's done. And then lastly, there's bubbles. You can create bubbles by using liquid with soy lecithin and then um, using a, an immersion blender, you can get them to kind of bubble up. So if you're interested in kind of learning a little bit more about this, there's, there's three YouTube um, creators that I recommend that you go to. One is just called molecular gastronomy and there's a ton of videos that they do my favorite is a woman who goes by chef rudakova and i think she's pretty charming in the way that she goes about this and um, then there's one called molecular r which also shows you you know quite a bit of of you know ways to do it Uh, you can buy kits if you go to amazon or any other site you can um, find w- what's known as molecular gastronomy kits, and they'll contain a whole bunch of things like agar-agar or xanthian gum, which is a thicker thickener and stabilizer, which is derived from fermented sugar. The next one is carrageenan, And there's a bit of, of controversy around this, that it may or may not be healthy depending on how it is sourced it comes from red seaweed and it's used to create a variety of textures in food and it's used quite a bit in vegan cheese so I'd be careful with that one um there's you know liquid nitrogen there's carbon dioxide there's something called transglutaminase which is a meat glue which I've never heard of but shows up that's an enzyme that bonds protein molecules together and it's used to fuse different types of meats or fish together. And then there's a whipping siphon and dehydrator. Dehydrators are pretty cool. We have a dehydrator. Um, Some of the newer toaster ovens or fancy toaster ovens come with the capability of dehydration. So there are some restaurants out there that if you kind of want to taste uh what molecular gastronomy looks like if you can um find one of these in in wherever you are uh, here's a couple the, the one that I know of the, the best and one unfortunately we didn't get to eat at is central in Lima Peru it is um down near the ocean kind of a, a couple of blocks from a, a pretty large size mall uh there's a chef Virgilio Martinez Feliz and his his food is just amazing in fact you can um look on youtube and, and see some of it uh he uses all the different foods from the different ecosystems from around um peru which has amazon and mountains and beach and all kinds of other things the other one and i i have to mention this because i'm a huge huge fan of jose andreas and his World central kitchen and the work that they do do around the world um, to two of his restaurants, Bazaar, in LA and Miami, um, use Spanish flavors and they use some avant-garde techniques. The other one is E by Jose Andreas, which is in Las Vegas, which is a more intimate um, offshoot of Bazaar and it's a multi-course menu. The last one, and there's. Quite a few others is Atelier Kren. And this is Chef Dominique Kren in San Francisco. And I've mentioned her before because she is one of the few restaurants that is experimenting with uh, lab grown meat. And if I'm not mistaken, she's using um, lab grown uh, dairy products to make eclairs. So, We will be back after a few messages to discuss uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart so stay tuned we'll be back to food forward nourishing the world after these messages
3: from the vivid imagination of acclaimed author alan weiner Comes a mystery series that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Meet Max Rosen, a spirited young newspaper reporter who finds himself entangled in a web of suspense, secrets, and danger. In what goes up, Rosen's instincts lead him to a mystery that soars beyond expectations. This journey continues in tickle takedown, where the stakes get higher, the mysteries deeper. And just when you think you have him figured out, Max evolves a nose job. Taking us into the mature and thrilling world of investigative journalism, Alan Weiner crafts a world filled with adventure, where every clue counts, every lead matters, and every page turns faster than the last. Dive into the Max Rosen Mysteries series today, available now on Amazon.com. Max Rosen Mysteries, where intrigue and adventure await at the turn of every page. Brought to you by Alan Weiner, writing stories that take you on a journey one mystery at a time
1: opinions options answers you're listening to voice america health and wellness
0: welcome back to food forward with alan weiner have a question for Alan or his guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to Food Forward, Nourishing the World. I'm your host, Alan Weiner. So we're going to move off uh, the topic of food for a moment. And uh, I'm not keen on talking about myself that much, but... Sisters, a commercial that plays during the show that talks about books from the vivid imagination of Alan Weiner. and I've never been told to have a vivid imagination, but I'll accept that. Um, this particular Friday, September 28th is a big day for me as I will have my first real publisher book come out from Pegasus Publishers, a, a British-based company which has global distribution they will be releasing my my novel, Watchtower. So if you listen next week, uh, I will briefly talk about the book and its release, and I will give you a special code that you can use to get a discount if you purchase it. It will be available in paperback and in digital form. Um, And I'm hoping uh, with the help of, of Pegasus Publishing's Publicity department to do some some speaking around the country, either live or you know, on a podcast or radio show myself. So um, keeping my fingers crossed on that. But let me kind of tell you a little bit about um, the book. People ask me two questions. They ask me, um, "What's the book about?" And I always say the same thing: three hundred and twenty-five pages, which most people don't think is very funny. Um, the book is a a. A story of a a young man uh, and the troubles he has in growing up. Now, the first three books that I wrote were kind of, sort of, semi biographical. They were a three part series of a character named Max Rosen, who starts off as a newspaper reporter and he then um, gets into some you know pickles where he uses friends and the FBI to help him you know get out of it, and it was a part of a series that I wrote after taking an online course during the pandemic from Michigan State University um, on their distance learning on how to write your first novel. So let me talk a little bit about Watchtower. So Watchtower um, is based on a a character named Mark Tower. And uh, to kind of get to the, the heart of it, when Mark, um, after a, a series of brush-ins with the law, winds up in in prison for something that he really shouldn't have been charged with in the first place, he meets a number of people. One of whom is a watchmaker, and what this watchmaker does is he, um, you know, takes watches from prisoners and guards and he fixes them. So he's given you know some, some pretty wide berth. So Mark, who has yet to find himself, um, kind of starts working with this man and picks it up pretty quickly and then learns to make what is in an industry known as a Frankenwatch. And this is all true. A Frankenwatch is a watch that is made from different parts. You know, there's an old song by um, uh, Johnny Cash. I think it's about making a car from the assembly line where somebody brings home a number of different parts and then makes a car from all those parts. It's the same thing, but with, with watches. So you have a dial made by Seiko. You have a case made by someone else. You have a, a, um, the innards of the, uh, watch made in, in Japan and you kind of put it all together so he begins to make these franken watches and leads to him um, finding a woman who may or may not become the love of his life and growing as a person while at the same time managing his relationship with his father who has some difficulties of his own and his mother who again has difficulties of his own the one thing that i'll tell you if you ever choose to write a novel and everybody believes they have a novel in them, and that may be true. Write about what you know, and it's much easier not only on the topic, but the location. I think that that's really important and something that you cannot get just by looking at Google Maps. So, My books, my Max Rosen books are set in the Lehigh Valley in Allentown where I lived for a long time and went to college. And this book is set in um, the Lehigh Valley, as well as Arizona, the Phoenix Scottsdale area. So more about my book next week, but what I'd like to do now is thank the audience who is crucial to the future of Food Forward. I wanna hear from you. You can email me at alan at foodforwardradio.com and or follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and a newly built LinkedIn site go to the website, www.foodforward.com. We are feeding your curiosity one bite at a time for Food Forward. This is Alan Wiener. Until we meet again.
0: Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Food Forward. We hope we've given you some insights into the wide world of food. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.